All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What's up, man? Hello. How you doing? What up? What up? I'm good. How are we? <laughs> doing, great. doing good, doing good. Dynamite. Thank you for doing this for us, man. Of course. How are we? Oh, we're great. Doing good, brother. <laughs> Better it's now. Where are you right it's now? Good to see you. I'm at my home. This is my studio. Okay. Hey. I couldn't tell what that was. The background. I, I didn't know it was a hockey rink or yes, I now see it's a studio. <laughs> it's a studio. Okay. <laughs> Got it. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is Questlove Supreme. I'm Questlove. We're here with Team Supreme. Fontigolo, brother, how you doing? Good, man. Good, man. Sitting with the boss. Yes. Yes, we are. It's pretty damn good. Right yeah. Here. Hello. How are you? I am living the American dream, friend. Living the American <laughs> dream. Mr. <laughs> Sugar Steve. Yes. How's everybody doing? I, I've got a couple of bosses in here in this show. I'm going to behave. <laughs> I got a few bosses, too, in here. Uh, shout, out, shout out to my boy uh, John Landau, who, who's, who's listening. Wait, wait, is 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 Umbe Bill like? Did he go out for cigarettes and didn't tell us? Or I yeah, just think I mean, that man is working, man. I think he's just working on yeah. another Tony Award-winning production that's coming soon. I think, yes, right? Yes, I know. I know. Okay, okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Questlove Supreme, and I will simply say that um, our guest today is one of the great master storytellers he is one of the most respected and well-loved craftsmen of song he's literally the embodiment of the working class hero the everyday american you know representative of the people and he's basically giving us the honor today of celebrating uh with him the release of his 21st 21st album entitled uh, Only the Strong Survive. And if uh, that idiom is familiar to you uh, and you're a soul record aficionado, then you pretty much know that that classic was pinned by, I'm from Philadelphia, so any chance to pick up Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, uh, Mm. and of course, Chicago's own The Iceman, uh, Jerry Butler. Uh, That's where that song title uh, derived from, that classic song. And you know, our, our our guest today has basically been bestowed with every honor uh, worth having in this field. Over 135 million LP sold, 20 Grammys. Uh, he has an Oscar, a Tony, two Golden Globes. Um, shit, all, all he needs is an Emmy to get his EGOT. Uh, I sound like I'm in trouble. My wife just won <laughs> one, though. She got the Emmy. All right, so he's, you, you're quite by EGOT. <laughs> you're she won the Emmy. All right, yeah, so man, as a combination, as one, they, they, we we got EGOT status here. <laughs> You're also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Kennedy Center Honor. Um, you received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. All this before the ripe old age of 21. So everything. Um, yeah, pretty much. That's crazy, man. Let, let me just say, let me just say that I literally 
My very first Springsteen show, I literally saw this man climb the speakers <laughs> and the wall of the Apollo Theater to the balcony level. And he's 20, 20 years my senior. So that means I got to step my game up. And ladies and gentlemen, please, 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 please welcome um, the one and only, the boss, Bruce Frederick Joseph Springsteen. I like that. <laughs> You got my yes. You have my and you have my confirmation name. Wow! <laughs> oh, wow. I just your, lost your my. Name. I, <laughs> I come from a long line of Fredericks. That was my dad and my grandfather. We were all Fredericks. Wow! <laughs> wow! Okay. So, so. Uh, first, first of all, you know, congrats on the new album. I always wanted to know how do you determine the the pivot or the direction of how an album will go. Like I, I love when artists, you know, they feed their fan base what their fan base needs and what well, what their fan base wants. And then sometimes you have to give them what they need and what they don't expect. And you're often known, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a, a push and pull where we will get that classic Jersey Springsteen sound, but then you'll do a departure record like a Nebraska or the Ghost of Tom yeah. Jones, that sort of thing. So for you, yeah. what was what was the 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 sort of mind state of where you wanted to go for this album? Uh, well, I knew I was done writing for a while, so that had a lot to do with it. I made a record with the E Street Band called "Letter to You," and and uh, I hadn't written for the band in quite a few years, and then I wrote most of that record in about a week and a half or two weeks, and we made it in four days. And it oh, wow. was very, yeah, it was very summational. In other words, it was sort of like, this was my story up to this point. And uh, it just felt like, and we made a film that went with it. And it felt like after that, I just felt like, well, I'm, I'm done. I, I don't have anything I, I feel I want to write about at the moment. So uh, we're in the middle of COVID and... Uh, also, I enjoy the act of recording. I, I, I like being in the studio, you know, making sounds. And, and so uh, basically I started like, well, maybe I'll record some things I haven't written, which I haven't done very much. I, I, I did a sort of an Americana record called uh, Secret Sessions a, right. a, a while back. But I, but I hadn't, I, I, you know, I'm usually writing my own material. So uh this was an instance where I said, well, I'm going to try and sing some other things, you know? And so I, I just started doing that, just coming in the studio, taking a song and, and seeing what my voice sounded like, like, like on it. And uh, I made a record with, with basically sort of singer songwriter overtones or some rock overtones. And I put it away. I, it was, it, we, I pretty much, I recorded all of it. We didn't mix it, but when I listened back to it, I said, it, it wasn't focused enough. So uh, some way or another, I ended up recording this du Frank Wilson's Do I Love You. And if people know Motown, yeah. they know Frank Wilson was more in the back line of Motown. But he did sing and perform, and he was a great singer, songwriter, and, and producer and performer. And so we had this, yeah. uh, this, this cut that was a hit in the northern soul scene in England. Right, mm -hmm. where they sort of dig up a lot of uh, unusual Motown records and unusual soul records, and so this was a uh, was well known in that scene, but in the states it really wasn't known at all. So, and mm -hmm. I said, this is an incredible song. So I'm just going to see if I can get up in that vicinity where Frank Wilson was singing and see if I can sing it, and if we can get a production that is powerful enough to stand up to, of course, the fab, incredible Motown records, you know. So uh, we cut that, and and I, I felt like I touched on to something. And then we did a few other, I think I did When She Was My Girl, The Four Tops, the Tops mm -hmm. record that they had a big hit after they left Motown. And right. I said, oh, that's fun. That's a, it had a little disco thing to it, and, and, and uh uh, I'm kind of in the range of Levi, you know, of Levi Stubbs. I mean, I can't sing like him, but I'm in I'm in his range. So yeah, that baritone, uh, gruff baritone. Yeah, I got that gruff baritone, so I can sing those songs in those keys. And uh, so I, I started to just, you know, I, I cut two or three soul things, and and, and 
and it felt very focused and fresh and like I hadn't done it before. And it also focused on my voice, which is something I haven't given a lot of focus to. Usually on the records, I'm I'm focusing on my songwriting, if the lyrics are any good, if the song's powerful enough. And then my voice is there in service of that material, of uh, of my songwriting and of my production. And, and it, it's usually, I don't start voice first and think, oh, what's going to sound great, me singing. But in this case, I got a chance to say, okay, I'm going to just use my voice as, as the measuring stick of where I'm going to go. And if I can sing something well... In this genre, I'm going to take a swing at it and, and have some fun with it. But it really began as a result of sort of feeling like I was done writing for a while. And uh, I'd finished sort of what I had to say with, with my band for a moment. And and then looking just for something to do to stay active and, and engaged and, and, and keep the conversation going with my audience and my fans and, and just have some fun. Just have some fun with it. Okay. So you mentioned something with the... Um when you talked about the, the, the Seeger sessions, which was that you recorded it in four days. Now that was letter to you. I recorded oh, letter in four to days. You, sorry. Yeah. Yes. The Seeger, Seeger sessions, we actually recorded very quickly also, but, but, uh, and, and live as was so, letter to you. So I, I have a question about that process because, you know, currently right now I'm probably in the worst place where an artist can be, which is like, I'm on the ninth year of working on, the same album. So, <laughs> oh, I've been there. Not you, nine. I haven't been nine years, but I've been years. So yeah. I have a little bit of a feeling where you're coming from. <laughs> but the thing is, is that when you when you turn in an album in four days, well, first I got to know, is that your own accord or is that John on your shoulders? Like, <laughs> yo, you got a weekend to finish this shit. And then- <laughs> no, no. We never play it like that. Uh, we we always play it like nobody cares how quick you made that record the day it came out. If you rush to make a bad record, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's still what, a bad what, record. That's all. What's it mean to your fans and and your your audience? If you if you hurrying up to get a bad record out there, why? So you can go on to you know it it just doesn't it never made sense to me and I never did it right from when I was in my early twenties. If it took me a year, I took a year. If it took me a month, I took a month. If it took me a few days, I made it in a few days. And I made records all across that spectrum where it took me years and where it took me just days to put them out. And it depends on the album, the record itself, its quality. When I feel like I've achieved what I was after, then I put the record out. Like, at least with me, I feel like I at least need to let it simmer for maybe a month or so before I feel different about it. Like, I'm excited about it when I, you know, when you drive home and you got sure. the rough mix in the final mix and you're excited and you played it a billion <laughs> times and you you test it for everyone. And then there have been times where, like, maybe two months later, I don't I don't get those goosebumps anymore. And then I readjust the song and then do something different. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't scare you to quickly uh, execute something that fast. And well, I listen to my ears, you know, okay. if my ears are telling me it's good. Then I believe them, you know, and then I have, I also have That's... John as my, is my sounding board. So I'll right. play something for him and he'll say, yeah, yes, no. He'll give me his opinion about it. So we've had a 45 year partnership where we've done that every single record, you know, for a very long time. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, and so we, you know, so we have a, a sort of a system. And of course I have the band and, and, you know, they have their feelings and, and opinions. And, and so I just play it. I, I, I play it like that. And and also you, you have a certain amount of time it takes just for the record company to get ready to release it, whether it's two or three months or so. And mm-hmm. if I'm not sure, I'll just sit on it. If I'm sure, I put it out. And and if it's good, then I'm sure. But if I'm not sure, if I'm sort of like, well, I'm, I'm in the middle, I just sit on it and I wait I wait for it to speak to me. I'm okay. always just listening, 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 listening for the music to speak to me, to tell me what it is, what it wants to be, what's the relationship between my fans and I that the record is going to uh, inspire or instigate a you know, where's it going to take our conversation next? Uh, so I, you know, I, 
I reasonably trust my ears, and if I get it done in a short period of time, then then it's all all for the better, you know. But if it takes time, I'll take it. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Okay, so you're a band leader of not just these arbitrary group of musicians, but, you know, you're probably one of the last acts in which your fan base knows every last band member, almost every solo, <laughs> you know, like, you know, they, they have their favorites and whatnot. So as a band leader uh, that has a well-loved fan base of people that admire your musicians, How exactly does your band get the news that you want to, that you want to do a solo flight? You know, like even, I guess the first time you did it was with Nebraska, correct? Yes. You know, and that was by accident. So I didn't know I was doing it at the time, but I did, (laughs) but I made it making that record. Yeah. But I mean, do you just tell them like, Hey, layback guys, like I'm going to, I'm going to do this one alone or do you have to have a meeting and, I think this record came up uh, where it was like um, we we cut Letter to You, had an incredible time, probably the best sessions I've ever done with the E Street Band in the studio. We made it in no time. We did two songs a day, uh, every day, and we very, very minimal, minimal, minimal overdubs, a guitar solo here, a guitar solo there. So, of course, but then you did thinking, it all live? Yeah, all live. Singing. Even vocals? Vocals, too. Whoa! Everything, wow. everything, everything is cut live in the studio. Singing, playing, no overdubs. What you was know? the reasoning behind that? It's just how it worked out. I was assuming I was going to re-sing the vocals, and then when I went to re-sing them, they weren't as good as what I cut live, and so I left them. You know, it was pretty basic. You know, so uh, after that, I assumed, well, I'll do something else with the band because you know we had such a great time. But that music just doesn't work. Like I have to, like I said. I'm not telling, I'm listening. You know, I'm I, I'm not I'm not telling my talents where to go or or I'm listening to where they're telling me they want to go, you know, and and what I might be good at next. So, uh on this record, I remember having a little conversation with Steve, we just said, "Gee, you know, Steve, he said, "Well, we we were going to, you know, we we're talking about how we were going to do a, a covers record." And then I realized, well, the covers record was a whole other thing. And it was uh, once again, I'm back into cutting a lot of material and choosing some of it. Like mm-hmm. on the, the band record, Letter to You, yeah. I used everything I cut. But on this on this record, I cut a lot of material and I choose just some of it. You said you swung a lot of times to figure out which record you wanted. I was wondering how you narrowed oh, the yeah. whole process down. Yeah, you know, so, so this was a record where I know it was going to take me a lot of concentrated studio time. Ooh. 
And the mm. guys at this point sort of, we don't go in and spend a year in a studio like we used to, you know, that, mm. that sort of, so, so it ended up being me and my producer, uh, Ron Aniello and our engineer, Rob LeBray. And, uh, uh, we kind of just started doing quote, of course, demos and the demos end up being what you end up releasing, you know, <laughs> of course, <laughs> this is, this has happened to me many times. The band is used to this happening to me at this point. And, uh, it's, it's a give and take a process that we're used to recording with the band, recording some solo music, uh, you know, and I don't know where it's going next myself. Like I said, I'm listening to find out also like the audience is. I just want to know how many songs are on the floor. Like how many didn't make it? A lot. This Prob on this record, there was probably, yeah. well, there's 15 on. I don't even want to think how many are, how many were off. I mean, what? Any idea, Rob? Huh? Man. Say that again? <laughs> 40? Yeah. Oh, so there was, wait, so there was <laughs> 40. So in other words, I put out 15 and I left 40 down. Yikes. You know? So I, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to find out what is going to be the best record, you know, or, or have them make the most sense to, to me and my audience, you know. So that's not unusual. I've, I've, I've made records where I've cut 70 songs, 80 songs, and, you know, they come out on box sets in different places where, but on this particular record, there were 40, uh, 40 songs we left, we left in the can. Okay. So since this album is essentially kind of at least the spirit of it is is a return to the music that you kind of fell in love with in your childhood sure i guess i'll start with the first question i ask every guest on the show even though this is like the fourth question um what was your what was your very first musical memory my first musical memory was disney records what was the seven snow white and the seven dwarves Wow. Hi ho, hi ho. It's right. all yeah. work we go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my first recollection was something like that, you know, or uh you know those little yellow records that played on 78 speed oh. uh, i don't know if you guys are old enough to remember these oh no nah, we remember I oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they were little 78s that spin you know little kid colors red yellow blue and they they played at 78 and they were basically themes from movies so that would be my first real musical memory as a child but after that my mother was young she had me when I was, uh, when she was in her early 20s, she played the radio. She had the radio on all time, every day, you know, in the car and in the kitchen. And she listened to Top 40. And so right from a very young age, I was exposed to like uh, the great music of the 50s. And, and that sort of was where, what kind of inspired me, you know, and, and really I'm a... I'm basically a top 40 influenced musician. That's how I kind of grew up. And I, I started there and then I went searching in blues and folk and a lot of different other places for influences. But really, I started out just listening to top 40 on the radio. That's that's a little unusual, though, because I would think. Hmm, I, well, I mean, I, I would consider you maybe like the second generation of rock and roll. So you're not I mean, you're not exactly a greaser. And I know that you, in your teen years, you know, it was the late 60s, but I, it's very unusual for me to see, not, not agreeable, but at least an amicable, musically am, amicable environment in the household. Because normally, like, the, the music of the kid is rebellious music. And the right. parents are like, ah, turn this shit, you know. That, yeah, right, right, right. right. But you're you're saying that your your parents weren't like that at all. Like they. Well, my dad was a bit like that, but my mother, no, she was a young woman, and she was into, uh, uh, you know, we're Southern Italians, which means we like music, we can sing, <laughs> and we can perform. <laughs> you know? Where that come? Where that come from? <laughs> yeah, you know, hey, 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 you know. <laughs> If you're coming from Southern Italy, where I'm, where I'm from, only a generation or two removed, so I'm you know, on that side of my family. I'm a, I'm a new American. Okay. You know? Wow. And my, you know, so uh, if you're coming from there, and as a whole side of my family did, they were all you know singers and dancers and 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 all of that went on. You know, so um, since you mentioned it, of those forty songs that are on the floor. 
is, is one of those songs. Uh, what's the song, Steve? Wiggle Waggle. Oh, no. Wiggle Wobble, man. Wiggle Wobble. Wiggle Wobble. You played a a hell of a version of Wiggle Wobble on the air that night. (laughs) To this day, I'll I'll say that, you know, I've been on on the Tonight Show for, for, you know, 13 years. And, of course, you and I know that. It was weird because I don't think he does his Springsteen impression in front of you as much as he does (laughs) when you're not there. But... That that wiggle wobble uh, moment during the commercial. Uh, uh, now I got to explain. Back when um, uh, I think you were celebrating. Um, was it was it darkness or born of yeah, anniversary? It was, it, was, it was a box set. Was the anniversary of darkness. darkness? Yeah. Right, and so you know, you you and Stephen were basically just reminiscing of like the singles and the forty fives that really bonded you two together, and. Um, <laughs> That to me, that was the first time that uh, you know. Usually, when a, when a guest mentions a song or that sort of thing during the segment, the roots basically have like one minute to learn that song. Like, I'm already yeah. on YouTube, and we're I'm like impressed, right? So, <laughs> but that was such a that was such a moment for Jimmy. Like, he still tells. I hear that. I hear that story like once a week. For the last third, like literally, he only tells that story about how excited you were about. That. I was. I mean, come on, it's not that well known a record, even though it was a hit. And you guys nailed it in about sixty seconds. So that well, was, I, for a band leader, for a band leader, that's impressive. See, well, I, you know, I'm I'm also a, a kid of hip hop, in which you have to know songs, you know, as, right. as a producer. And so, like Herbie Hancock did a a cover that uh, on no. the, on one of his. Uh, <laughs> On one of his albums. So, well, speaking of which, do you remember the first album that you purchased with with your own money? Not like album that's already in the house, but like, I got to have this. Like first album and first 45. First album. Believe it or not, I think I bought an album of surf rock because uh, I liked the picture on the cover. There was a guy surfing some hundred foot wave, and and I and mm-hmm. so I, it was a, it was like a dollar ninety nine or something. It was really it was a knockoff record, and it was really kind of cheap. And I bought it. Though it might have had some Dick Dale on it, you know, King of the yeah, Dick Dale. <laughs> Dick Dale. It might have had some. It might have had some Dick Dale. So I brought that home, and that was my first album. I think. Uh, after that, really, my my album buying began with the British invasion. Uh, I would say, you know, that was when I started to really, you know, my album buying began when albums began to sell. It okay, was really, which really was mid '60s. You know, when suddenly mm-hmm. albums became the currency of the day and of the moment. And if you were going to make a name or uh, uh, for yourself, you know, you were you were putting out. A, not necessarily concept records, but but full records, records that right. were you know where uh, it wasn't filled with a lot of uh, uh, fodder, you know. So uh, right. uh, and and plus it was a time when I'd started to have get a little money of my own because I was playing in the band, so I had a few bucks and I was able to purchase a record on my own back in the in the mid '60s when I was 15, 16 years old. Okay. Since we're on records, um, me and Wessler are big record collectors and so forth. Ah. Uh, Has your the records you bought back then have they survived to today? Like, what does your record collection look like now? Does it include all that old stuff? No, you know, I I had my forty fives for a long time. Mm -hmm. They were at my they were at my mother's house for many many years. I could go in and visit my little stack of forty fives. And then at one time, I had a obviously a huge album collection. I have no idea where it went. Went where my socks went. Uh, you know? <laughs> like, wherever my record collection is that's where all my missing socks are <laughs> you uh. know so so it's, it's it's somewhere you know i i it's all gone now now I'm, I'm like a lot of people hey i got my entire record collection from when i was 13 to when i'm 73 in my pocket at all times <laughs> oh, so you, you're, you're a streaming guy i keep it uh i keep it with me yes <laughs> I had a, a specific question. Um, just tell me about how you met Clarence Clemens and y'all's creative relationship <laughs> over the years, man. I was looking for a saxophone player because I my roots came out of 
you know, out of show bands, which visited the Jersey Shore in the midsummer, because Asbury Park was like a cheesy sort of Fort Lauderdale. And so okay. there was a lot of top 40 music. There were a lot of show bands and uh, a lot of our influences came and they were playing a lot of soul music. So a lot of our influences came out, came from those places. And so uh, Clarence was in a band called Little Melvin and the Invaders. And okay. they, they played in locally in clubs. I think Gary Talent played bass with them, my bass player. And, uh, but I was looking for a saxophonist and, and it was hard to find somebody who was really into blowing uh, rhythm and blues saxophone or, or, or rock, rock and roll saxophone. Uh, and there were a couple guys in the area, you know, one guy's too crazy another guy's not quite good enough. And, uh, uh, uh so I had sort of, I had a couple of R&B influenced tunes that Clive Davis got me to write at the last minute before we put my first record out because he said I had nothing that would be played on the radio. So <laughs> I, went, I went home and I wrote two songs from my first record and they were both, uh, you know, they were both R&B influenced and, and uh, a song called Spirit in the Night and a song called Blinded by the Light. They're on my first album. And I found Clarence to play on those two songs. He had been right. missing in action the entire album until finally <laughs> one night he walked into this place I was playing called the Student Prince in Asbury Park. And he just came from the back of the room, this big presence. And he walked up to me and I was just on this little tiny stage with my guitar. I said, can I sit in? I said, sure. He got up. He sat in. Uh, it was a stormy night. There was nobody there in the club, you know, 30 people, 20 people. And the minute he started playing beside me, I said, okay, we, we have some, there's some connection going on here. This is the guy I've been looking for, for a large portion of my life. And maybe he felt the same way, you know, because we just connected and uh, so we just met rainy night, Asbury Park. And uh, after that, he came to the studio and 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 sat in on those two cuts. And then, you know, we eventually joined the band. I love how you just casually mentioned Blinded by the Light. Like, that's not a staple. It's just like, yeah, yeah you know, I had this song called When Doves Cry. I don't know if you guys heard it. <laughs> right, right, right. No, but um, I, I personally wanted to know, like, I know the story of at least how the blues had an effect across the pond, you know, for a lot right. of your contemporaries uh, that were part of the British invasion, um, you know, these bluesmen are now finding second win, second life over touring in Europe, doing the army bases and whatnot. And of course, right. like teenage stones, teenage Beatles see this. And then suddenly the British invasion music is informed, but you know, I, I I don't think I've ever had an interaction with someone, you know, on American soil on how, what music affected them. So for me, it's, I always wanted to know um, for your, for your uh, formative years, at least, yeah. like what effect did uh, Motown and Soul and James Brown and all of these, all these songs by like black artists have on you in Jersey at the time. Like, was it controversial to have, or was it, you know, because no. you know you're also coming of age in the civil rights period as well. Right, right. You know, and well, here's how it went on your bi-monthly dance at the high school. Right, okay. you go. Everybody's in their corners of the room. Right. You got the rah-rahs, the college bound kids over here. You got your your black kids over here. You got your uh, leather uh, greasers over here. The greasers over there. Over there, you know. And so uh, doo-wop gets played. The, the greasers come out and they got their girls and they're, they're on the floor. You get surf music or some of the top 40 early Beatles. You get the rah-rahs. They come out on the floor, you know. Um, but when Motown played, Everybody came out. Everybody mm. danced. It was the miracle of that music. It remains a miracle of that music to this day. Everybody danced, you know. So, and my our job at the time, was, we're a top 40 cover band, just like everybody else, you know. We're not necessarily playing all the top 40. We're playing a lot of blues, and we're playing a lot of soul music, and, 
things that we're just picking up from our albums also, but we're also playing a reasonable amount of top 40 music just to get gig booked at your high school dances. When they would call you to book you, they would say, can you play Soul Man? Can you play Satisfaction? Then if you can't play those songs, you're not going to get the gig. You know, somebody else who can play them is going to get them. Get it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, every week you learned a two or a revolving door of two or three new things, depending on what hit that week. And whether it was black, white music or white music, you just learned what was hitting, you know? And of course, you know, so Motown was, had, I mean, and Holland does your Holland and they had incredible, right. you know, so, so, uh, uh, it was it was kind of basically like that. It, it it you didn't even give that much thought to it at the time. You just played what was hitting, and uh, and but through doing that, you learn how Holland does your Holland. You learn Lennon how Lennon and McCartney or Gamble and Huff. You had to learn yeah. their songs. Yeah, you learn. Yeah. That's it. You learn their structure. You learn their mm -hmm. chord structure. You learn their production techniques. You learned you know and and so. Uh, one of the greatest times we had on making this record was we had to produce them all again. We had, to, and and I didn't try to make them different. I tried to make them the same. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah. I, I was sticking to the original string parts, the original horn parts, the original vocal parts. You know, really, we we changed. Obviously, you get a chance for a greater sound quality today, and my singing, that was all we really did differently. I wasn't interested in reinventing the wheel that was kind of perfect as it was, you know. So uh, so learning your craft came through uh, studying and learning week after week after week all of these songs. The best bands to this day are bands that, I, that maybe began as cover bands almost because you had to learn all different kinds of music, everybody's different writing techniques, everybody's different production techniques. And uh, uh, we had so much fun making this record because we were just remaking, that. we got to remake those records and going in and do a big string section with, a, uh, you know, players from the New York Philharmonic and, and watching them play uh, uh, Only the Strong Survive or or or, or, or uh, some Someday We'll Be Together, you know? So it was... Just a tremendous, uh, tremendously good time. Just relearning that those incredible records again. Did you track and mix your entire album in your home studio? Yes. All right. I got to know what kind of board are you using because even with the the mixing of the album, it hints towards one could say a, a, a vintage sound to it. What are we working on most of the time, Rob? This is SSL, yeah, SSL. We're working on our SSL board. Really? And, uh, okay. I thought it was a Neve. Okay. Uh, you thought what? I thought it was a Neve. Yeah, I was going to say that, but uh, I've worked on many Neves, but this was an SSL, you know. So, uh, but the guys were really good at getting good sounds, you know, and and getting authentic sounds, and and uh, uh, the whole record is, is 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 it's just us three guys in a studio. Wow. Can I ask a question? I'm curious because I know that in the process, usually when people do cover songs, there's no contact between the initial writers or artists or anything, but this is you. This is Bruce right. Springsteen doing covers of Motown, Gamble and Huff and everything. So I'm curious if, and shout outs to uh, Deanna Williams who kind of put this in perspective in the sense of this being a beautiful homage because also all these writers are receiving the royalties from this, you know, this project, which of is course, a beautiful yeah. thing. But yeah, but has there been any contact? Do, did they know like ahead of time that you were doing these things? Uh, Gamble, no one knew ahead of time because I, I'm afraid of telling anybody what I'm doing because I'll, I'll record something and then I'll throw it out a month or two later <laughs> and it doesn't happen, you know? So I don't right. like to tell anybody. I've received a little connection with Gamble and Huff. So I'm going to, I haven't met them, but I'm going to meet them because uh, they, they, they heard the kind of record I was making and, and, some, and some of their, and their influence, of course, is, 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 is well on it, you know? So it's it's no it's mostly it's it's just it's three guys in a room. That's <laughs> <You know? laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money. 
What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. I was I was curious to know, Bruce, you worked with Jimmy Iovine very early in his career as a producer. Were there yeah. any lessons that you kind of learned from him that you carried either into this record or any of your other records uh, that you produced? No, Jimmy learned all his lessons from me. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Say that. Say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, not just me. Jimmy, John, and then Jimmy was a sponge. He's a sponge uh. for learning. He always was. He was just one of the smartest, one of the quietest, quietly smartest guys in the room is Jimmy Iovine. You know, he's still my great, great friend. And uh, But when Jimmy started, you have to understand, when I walked in to do my first session at the record plant, all Jimmy was doing was pushing, pushing the start and stop button and putting the tape on and off. Mm-hmm. He wasn't engineering or producing any records. He hadn't done that yet. Is it shocking to you to see, like, how he's now like a super mogul or, you know, yeah. this is no, the guy it, that once like got your coffee and whatever, like, and now he's like, it's, it's totally shocking. And it, it it's remained <laughs> shocking to all of us to this day, you know, is that, okay. Jimmy Iovine is doing what? <laughs> he, made, he, he made what? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's got what? <laughs> so yes, there's a so lot of there's that. A, there's a lot of that that goes on. But but Jimmy was just a super talented guy. You know, he was, and he was a brave thinker. You know, uh, his partnership with Dre, incredible. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he was just uh, he was just a smart young guy. You know, and and so I walked in one night, and he went from the uh, pressing the start and stop button on the tape deck to. Uh, sitting at the board. And I said, John, what's he doing at the board, man? You know? <laughs> and and John says, well, he says he can do it. <laughs> so, and that, and that was it. Jimmy Iovine ends up engineering Born to Run. Did you like his yeah. mixing? Yeah, yeah. I like, okay. Jimmy did, Jimmy's technique was very simple. He mixed until you liked the way it sounded. You know? Oh, and, well, that's and, all it's and, called for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Much. He mixes... And he just mixes until you like the way it sounds. And, and he just figured it out, you know. So, uh, you know, but, but so Jimmy, we were all really beginners together, you know, honestly. We, we, yeah, yeah. we, and he, he, like the first time he was at that board, I, I walked in, I said, yeah, wasn't this guy like over just, just uh, can he do it, you know? But obviously he could, you know. <laughs> okay. Oftentimes, I'll say that, you know, most artists, and I'm one of those, like I'm so uber obsessed with writers that, you know, uh, this is basically my chance to play journalist, but, you know, oftentimes artists really aren't aware of their critical claim. And, you know, of course the, the, the main narrative of your journey um, into rock stardom was definitely through a connection of, you know, our, our pal, John Landau, who's, who's your manager. Yeah. Um, Landau, of course, famously, you know, wrote for Prime Rolling Stone and, you know, all these publications. And, you know, he's definitely the 
one of the first generation critical thinking journalists out there. And of course, he famously wrote that, you know, he saw the future of rock and roll back when he first saw you play, I don't know, <laughs> Boston or whatever, but he saw the future of rock and roll and his name is Bruce Springsteen. And I always wanted to know, like, okay, so from, from my side of the fence, those words in print could be super crippling to an artist. I've, I've known artists that are, you know, 27 years, 28 years in the game, and they might have three records out. I know artists that have given up after their first record. For you at the time when literally the entire world is declaring that you're going to pick up this 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 baton this this baton that's sort of like the remnant left over of the of the folk movement and the singer songwriter movement and the rock movement and whatnot was that any pressure on you or were you just shrugging it off like oh okay that's cool no like, i was a 20 i was a 25 year old kid so so i felt tremendous pressure you know but, but i felt two things you know i think good artists always feel the same way one they go I am a complete phony. Two, they go, <laughs> I am the greatest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> and they believe both things. <laughs> right. Now, believing that they're a complete phony keeps them working. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it keeps you chasing your craft and trying to get better and uh, and keep you working after it, you know? And thinking you're the greatest thing you ever said. Well, you need you got to have some of that swagger, man. If you're going to make it, and, and no matter how humble you're going to fake it, you're going to need some of that swagger to make to get yourself through, you know. So, uh, uh, but at the time, I felt tremendous pressure around it, and it it shook my world. And uh, you know, I just hunkered down, sat in, and we just played night after night after night after night after night after night. We played our hearts out in the best we could for year after year after year after year. At the end of the day, I was going to let the work speak for itself. You know, come and see me, come and listen to me, check my songs. And, and that's pretty much, that was my approach to it. But there was a lot of pressure at the time. And I, and I, I went through a lot of, uh, you know, uh, mental, <laughs> mental anguish about it. Uh, one question uh, I had, man, was regarding uh, one of my favorite records you did. Uh, was the song you wrote for The Wrestler, um, the, oh. the Mickey Rourke. Uh, right. Can you talk to me about like when you're writing for film? Do you get a copy of the film? Do they show it to you beforehand? Do they send you notes? How do you approach uh, writing songs for for film? Well, it, it varies. You know, Jonathan Demi called me in one time and said he was making a film that was dealing with the AIDS crisis, and he was looking for a song. So mm. I didn't see the film. I think I saw a few minutes of its opening because that's where he was looking for a song for. Wow. And so I spent a couple of days and I ended up writing and recording his song Streets of Philadelphia. That was one approach. The other approach, I just, uh, uh, sometimes somebody will send me a small piece of film and they'll say, this is the ambiance of the movie or this is where we're thinking of a song coming in. And and in Mickey's case, Mickey Rourke, you know, I'd been friends with him for quite a while and he said, man, this is, this is a big movie for me, and 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 do you think you'd have anything that might work? You know, so I said, okay, what is this a guy about? This is a song about a guy whose whole thing is living with pain, you know, living with pain. That that that's how, uh, that's how he processes his life. And so, with that in mind, I I I just sat down and and I think I wrote the song pretty quickly. That's what's up. Now, it fit that song. It fit the movie perfectly, man. Like, you, you did a great job. It really spoke Thank to the character. Wait, was was that song nominated for an Oscar? Or that, there? could you? All right. I'm only asking. I don't know what happened. To be honest with you, because I won a Golden Globe for it. Right. Okay. okay. Right. Okay. I won a Golden Globe. Mickey won the Golden Globe for acting. You know? Right. So well, uh, I, I have my thoughts on why Mickey... <laughs> <laughs> you know, when when Mickey Rourke gave his speech at the Golden Globes about his dog dying and everything, I knew instantly that was going to freak out the Academy. And thus, no, I still say that Mickey Rourke should have won that award. But yeah. I know how the Academy thinks they're like, mm -mm, he ain't making a fool of us on our stage. We're going to give that to, to Sean Penn. But I, also, the one yeah. I was wondering, OK, Sean. but I wanted to know why 
because they only have three songs in the category. And I was like, yeah, what the fuck is Bruce's song? And why is that? Did you, how many writers I, were? I, I was told something at the time that if the song wasn't within the body of the movie, it couldn't be nominated if it was just in the credit. I mean, I, I got oh, told wow. some sort of thing like that, whether that's yeah. true or not. I don't know. All I know is is it didn't get nominated. So yeah, that was I, I thought you, you were shooting for that. So okay, <laughs> there's I I don't know if you read the friendship of you and little Steven to me is like, you know, one one for the history books and the relationship <laughs> that you two have with each other. Um, and the way that he I, you know, when his book came out, it was one of my favorite rock memoirs ever because he's almost a poet in describing like, especially the early days where you guys were playing <laughs> these teen clubs, like the, the hello. Oh, yeah. The hello. hello. <laughs> yeah. So can, so can you, cause the thing is we don't necessarily have that today, but what were the teen? First of all, were these teen nightclubs yeah. at night or were they like afternoon things where you guys would play these nightclubs with teenagers in them? That's what it was. Here was the shocking thing, and it remains to me shocking to this day, is that that doesn't exist anymore. Right. But there's a, there's kind of a reason. And if you think about it, like 1966, Hullabaloo on TV, Shindig on TV, all, you know, American Bandstand, where the, you know, there's all sorts of Soul Train, you know, it's coming in. There's all sorts of different uh, music shows on. And, uh, but at that time, if you wanted to hire a rock and roll band, you had to hire children, teenagers. Really? Teen wow. Yeah, yeah. Teenagers are who played rock and roll. There wasn't a 40-year-old man playing rock and roll in 1966. Oh. Right? It was okay. just 14-year-old men, not 40. Now, okay. you want to hire a rock and roll band, you got to hire 50-year-old men. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, but at that time... At that time, you know, you it was it was you it was youth oriented. And so there were all of these clubs that were on either two or three nights a week sometimes, or certainly open on the weekends, and they were for teenagers only, really. There weren't even people in their twenties in them, and there was no booze served, but there were rock bands playing, you know, there were local rock bands and sometimes national acts, uh, where you honed your craft night after night you know i played in um, steven and i both played in who knows how many of these places but they mm -hmm. were all over the shore uh they're probably all over the country at that time you know but what people forget is rock and roll bands were teenagers in those days and 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 there were there was no such thing as like i say the 40 or 50 year old guy playing rock music you know but uh but this, this, the, what shocks me now is that that sort of venue no longer exists. These were places where everybody made their bones. Every, you know, everybody play. You played five hours a night. You played five sets. You know, mm -hmm. you played fifty minutes on and ten minutes off for five sets in a row, and and you did this, you know, weekend after week after week after week after week. And so, you know, Steve and I. We're craftsmen, you know, we're old school craftsmen like shoemakers, mm -hmm. you know, or, or like seamstresses or, or, or you know, we're, 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 we're those kinds of guys. You know, we, we learned our craft bit by bit, piece by piece, song by song. Uh, and, and, and basically that's how we perform on stage to this day. The E Street Band is a band filled full of craftsmen, guys who came up you know, learning their craft from first how to put it on the two and four. And uh, so that's that's different. Today, we have a kid in his bedroom. Two months later, he's got the biggest hit in the United States. He's on the radio. Right. He may have never played a gig in, in his life, you know. There's something cool about that in that, and that sort of it, it, it being there available to all is a wonderful thing. You know, and it was totally out of any type of, you couldn't even record yourself in 1966 unless there, people didn't have studios or they didn't have tape players. I was going to ask, do you feel as though you're the father or the, yes. And I know like Todd Rundgren and Sly Stone and Stevie Wonder were all like, whatever, the, the, the bedroom musician or whatever. But 
the kind of legacy that is the Nebraska record, even though you said it was an accident and you were just, right, you know, just putting some songs down on tape. But do you sometimes credit yourself with the Nebraska album being like the really one of the first early examples of that that type of lo-fi home recording? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just you know I can't claim any credit for it because I I wasn't planning on doing anything that was unusual at the time. I was simply trying. To hear if I had any uh, any any good songs to record with the E Street Band when we went in the studio, and I was sick of wasting all my money with endless hours of studio time, throwing out forty songs, leaving them on the floor. And so I said, "Well, I'm going to find out if I have some good songs, and I'm going to go in and record those songs." But of course, the minute you you hit the the start button, things happen. And things happen that aren't going to happen again. They're only happening right now in this particular moment in time. So I'm in my bedroom and I just sent my guitar tech out to get a little four track TIAC cassette player, which, mm-hmm. you know, previous to that, all I had was my boom box to record wow. our rehearsals on, you know, we were, we're recording our rehearsals on the boom box. And so I sat down and I started to play off these songs and, you know, I, I played a certain amount and then suddenly I went to record it with the band, didn't sound as good. I went to record it by myself in the studio, didn't sounded better, but was worse. And suddenly I realized that the little cassette I had in my pocket, that was my album, you know? Who talked to you into, so you yourself said the cassette, this is, this is the final album? Well, this is all debatable. If you read Steve's book, Steve says he said it was. If you read, I'm sure John <laughs> what... thinks he said it was. And I think it, I think it was my credit. <laughs> That's right. I think it was my idea, but uh, who knows, you know. <laughs> the promise of of uh, a rock god is 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 coming in the 70s. And, you know, I mean, you delivered with these records, you know, The River and, and, and Born to Run and, 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 and Darkness. But do you often find, and especially with how Born in the USA was received, do you often find that sometimes you might, have a fan that's more in love with the idea of Bruce Springsteen than the actual Bruce Springsteen. I mean, I know that you've had many a situation where like uh, this particular unsavory p- political figure wants to use born in the USA. Oh, sure, yeah. Only mm-hmm. missing the fact that the song <laughs> has nothing to do with type of patriotism. So, you know, when this album comes out, are you at all aware or are you even in the, in the mind space of knowing that you're about to go to like God levels that Born to Run wasn't taking you yet? Like <laughs> before before Born in the USA, did you just think like, OK, well, I'll just coast out and do whatever? Or was there still a hunger in you to no, grab man. the brass ring? Yeah, yeah, that's that that's been that's never gone away, you know. And uh started when I was a young kid and I always tell people, more than rich, more than good looking, more than uh I, I wanted to be great. I wanted to make great music. I wanted to inspire people the way that I felt inspired. And if yeah. I could do that that's my life's work, you know. I just want to inspire you with with what I created and my music, the way that I was inspired by the people who touched my heart and my soul and my life with their music. That's really what I like doing, you know? Everything else, great. You know, you want to throw the money at me, dynamite, you know? That's all fabulous, too. But uh, I just love, love doing what I'm doing, and I love, I still love pursuing that golden ring. It takes a lot of different shapes as life, as life goes on, you know, sometimes it's a Nebraska or it's a Born in the USA or it's it's a The Rising or something else or some other record, you know. But that, that speaking speaking of, of Born in the USA, what were your thoughts on Band in the USA by Two Live yes, Crew? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, they asked me about it. Oh, my it God, I, said, I forgot that. That's yes. right. Come on. <laughs> they asked me about it, and I said, sure, go ahead, you know. That's wow. what I said. Wait, there, there, the, reason, the reason why I asked you that question about were you trying to grab the brass ring or did it just happen right. and it 
it occurred, you know, without your planning is because I all so this this one, of course, you know, I'm one of the 12 million. This is the first Springsteen album I ever owned. And I always wanted to know. So, you know, there's six singles from this record. But for me, I always wanted to know why the monster ones were always just at the end of side two. Like in my mind, like Glory Days Dancing in the Dark. Yeah. Uh, even my hometown closes it like that's buried at the end of side two. And normally the way that albums are structured, it's like your heavy hitters at first and you're, you're OK, I'll let you write your song or whatever. Like, right. That would be the Landau theory. The Landau theory is heavy hitters come first. Usually, you know, mm. my theory is I'm looking for a narrative in the record. I'm 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 taking the intellectual. I'm taking the intellectual point of view. I know John. John in this instance is taking uh, the gut. Is using his gut to make his judgments, and I'm going the other way. I'm thinking like, well, what's kind of what am I trying to say? What am I? How am I saying what song? I knew my hometown was going to close it. I knew Born in the USA was going to open it, and everything else. But I didn't. I don't know how it ended up where it was. It just did. I, <laughs> I just man, it just all to this day, like. I just, I've never seen an album. I'm, I'm, I'm a guy that, that obsessed over sequencing and songs and all oh, that yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important. And I've just never <laughs> seen an album built that way that it's such a staple of yours, but it's almost like, eh, whatever, just throw the song where I, and I always wanted to know why, like, your heavy hitters were, like, way buried at the end of the of the album. But I probably didn't know they were heavy hitters. I just thought they were another, it was another cut, you know? I mean, I knew when I wrote, I knew when I wrote Dancing in the Dark that that sounded like a, what I thought was a hit for me, you know? Mm. And I don't, you know, I, and which I do not have many other records I've cut where I said, oh, yeah, that's going to be a top 40. I'm generally not a top 40 hit artist i'm more of an album artist you know I but know. but i knew when i cut that when i said well if i was ever to have a hit it would sound like it's gonna be that one yeah yeah that's right and so uh uh it's sort of uh uh that's a song that's just sustained itself over the john legend does a version of it sounds like gershwin incredible yeah. he does a beautiful yeah. version of it you know and uh but i so but why the thing ended up at the bottom of the second side I really don't know. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <You know? laughs> La lastly, um, I'm going to ask you, you know, you, you did a you did a string of dates at Master Square Garden and I got to witness about five of them. Wow. And each show was, you know, your, your typical gargantuan three and a half hour affair, whatnot. All the songs were different orders. It's almost like a new right. show every night. How 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 are you able to 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 all that text, all those right. chord changes, all those arrangements? And you know, at one point, I decided. I think on the third night, I decided I'm just going to walk in the stadium and watch the audience watch you. And they're <laughs> they're singing everything verbatim, so it wasn't even like you were missing a step or missing a lyric or anything. How much pressure is it in putting those shows together and those songs? And how do you even craft? your show well two years my band will be, have been together for 50 years okay you know, so we've got a lot of history and we've got a lot of experience all right and uh on the last tour we played 200 songs 200 yes. different 200 different songs you know we'll pull things out of the audience or or you know i'll just my thing is on usually once the tour gets rolling the show is regularly different on a night-to-night -night basis, you know, and uh, I'll, you know, I'll get with the guys. I'll, I'll send notes into the guys before showtime. I'll say, uh, refresh yourself on this one from that album, this one from that album, this one from that album, because we might play it tonight. So the guys will have, you know, hopefully they'll have an hour or a half hour to, to prepare themselves a little bit. And then we rehearse in the afternoon also. We don't just play three and a half hours a night. We're... We're there in the afternoon, and I've we'll do we have done two hour sound checks just just trying to learn something new or 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 you know the sound checks can go from ten minutes to to two hours you know and, but it, it's it's just because it's fun you know it's just all it's right. just it's still all just fun playing on playing surprising that audience here and there is is 
is just, it's fun to do. It's wonderful. You know, it's wonderful. I look, what am I doing? I'm standing looking in your face all night long, every night. I'm watching how you're responding to what I'm doing. And then I'm responding to you. So -hmm. there's this huge circle of energy going on. I'm, you're watching me. I'm watching you. You're watching me. And then I'm watching you. And this is going on all night long with the, with the beautiful faces in front of you. And it's a, it, it remains an honor to play for our audience. And that's the way that I approach it. And that's what I insist from the band on a nightly basis. As you come out, your name is on the line every single night. I don't care how long you've been doing it, right? Your name Thanks. is on the line that night. You have an opportunity to impact somebody's, yeah. somebody's life tonight. I don't care how long you've been doing it. And it's somebody's first time seeing you. That could be someone's first time seeing you that night. It's somebody's first time. That's right. Every night is somebody's first night. I want to play like it's my first night. You know, Yo, so that's that's a mic drop right there. I'll say to our audience that, you know, if there's ever a show or a comfort zone that you have to leave and, and see someone that you've never seen before or someone outside of your zone, I absolutely 12,000, 12 million percent recommend that you see a Springsteen show because literally the show, like you perform like your life depends on it. And I've seen you at least in the last 10 years, I've seen you about 15 times and like each, each, and I'm the guy that doesn't know everything by heart. Like I'm, uh-huh. I came, I've learned stuff backwards. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, I know well enough to now say, yes, I'm a Springsteen fan, but even at the time when, you know, when I first saw you, like I only know a few albums and a few cuts, but yeah, I, I highly recommend it's, it's an education just to watch someone that passionate about their craft um, service a, a, a bunch of fans in the audience, which you, you know, and I'm, I'm going to shows now and I'm, I'm not trying to be the old guy. That's just like, ah, oh, man, I'm not, not connecting anymore like I used to, but yeah, for me, uh, you know, you're you're one of the last Mohicans left, so I, I highly recommend. <laughs> and I, I thank you for doing this with us. Thank you, thanks, Wes. Thank you, thanks, guys. Thank you, thank you, for sure. Thank, thank you, you, man. On behalf of uh, Laia and Fonticolo and Sugar Steve and Unpaid Bill, this is Quest Love, and we will see you next go round of Quest Love Supreme. And thank you, Bruce Springsteen. All right. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 